Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I'm a political science professor and the coordinator for democracy commitment. I want to thank the library for hosting us. It's great to have these in-person events again. And today's topic is the 2022 election. So we've designed this to be as user-friendly as possible. We want it to be informative and try to be all the key information you need to know about this upcoming election. So we do have a microphone that we can pass around. If there's any questions uh, or comments along the way, please don't hesitate. I want to thank uh, Kathy Valeska as our interpreter up front. And I also want to thank um, Dr. Troy Swanson, who is to my left. And he is a librarian and legislative chair. And uh, Dr. Swanson found out about two minutes ago that he was going to be part of this panel. And he instantly volunteered. Um, we I'm like had. The, I'm like the fifth stringer. So <laughs> he's the fifth stringer. I'm going to try we, not to say inappropriate things. We have a deep bench. Um, but uh, two, of our panel two of our panel members were unable to be here today. Um, so we will, they will be missed, uh, Dr. Shrek and Mary Fafleese. And we look forward to participating with them in future events. So the 2022 election, I'm sure you've heard a lot about it. And if not, I'm sure you've at least been exposed to a lot of campaign advertisements. So um, one of the things that we call these uh, elections that occur every two years are midterm elections. So we have a presidential election every four years. And we just had one in 2020. So we have national elections every two years. And the election that occurs during the midpoint of the presidency is referred to as a midterm. And some of my students are asking, well, when is the election? And the final date that you can vote is November 8th. But it's unique now in the last several elections in that it's not really just an election day as much as an election month. And if I'm not mistaken, in Illinois, it's been open for about four, uh, even longer than a month. Um, I've already voted. Maybe some of you have voted. So the last final day that you can vote is November 8th. And I've had a few people ask about how do I get registered to vote or how do I find out if I'm registered to vote. And there's a great um, website, and I'll just pull this up, the Illinois Board of Elections. You can do a Google search on your phone, Illinois Board of Elections. Uh, registration lookup, and you can simply list your name and birthday in your zip code. And this will let you know not only whether you're registered to vote, but where your local polling place is. So that's good information. And then another key bit of information from the Illinois um, Board of Elections is uh, for those of you who are not already registered to vote, you can still get registered to vote. We happen to have same-day voter registration in Illinois. It's a pretty unique scenario. But if you were to go to your local polling place and bring two forms of ID, which could be your you know, passport, military ID, driver's license, credit, debit card, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid card, all these forms of information that, again, you can find on the Illinois Board of Reg registration, uh, Illinois Board of Elections, um, to make sure that you can get registered to vote in person on the day of the election. So in this midterm election, who can we vote for? Um, there's actually a lot of different offices, and I thought it might be helpful to look up a sample ballot. 
if I'm not mistaken, I've already pulled one up. And uh, there's a resource. There's a lot of different ones like this, but Ballotpedia is pretty easy in that you simply type in your address and your town and state. And I just selected the Moraine Valley address. And then the November 8th election, and you will see a, a list of everything that you can vote on. So if you want to get up to date and try and understand uh, you know, some of these different offices, some of the different candidates, some of the different ballot measures. So at this point, I thought I'd open it up uh, to my fellow panel member, Dr. Swanson. And one of the measures that we have on the ballot is the Illinois Amendment Number 1, the right to collective bargaining. Yes, so this amendment is known as the Workers' Rights Amendment. You'll see some of the signs around our district uh, related to that. And just, just for full disclosure, transparency, um, Kevin, Kevin and I are both union members. We're part of the faculty union here at Moraine Valley, so you can know where our biases may stand. Um, but the Workers' Rights Amendment is an amendment to the Illinois Constitution that would prevent the Illinois government from taking away the right of workers to bargain to form a union with their employer. So that means in order to take that right away, they would have to change the Illinois Constitution, uh, which is hard to do. So we're hoping to get that put in there, just, just to say that up front. So if, if you go, and I won't, I won't give you the full history, but there was a time where the state of Wisconsin, just as our neighbor to the north, was one of the strongest union states in, in the country, right? And where unions would, would work to up, help the middle class, where you could get a good union job that would help people pay with or without a college education. Um, union jobs, on average, um, provide a better living, better benefits than non-union jobs. Starting in around 2010, there was a big push um, in the Wisconsin government where the Republicans took over the whole government, essentially. Um, the, the midterms, a reaction against Obama in some ways, where they controlled the governorship, they controlled the, the state legislator, le legislature, and they made it um, illegal for public employees to form unions. And so then all of those union rights, and so then that, what that means is wages erode, you, you lose benefits. And if you would go back in time to like 1985 and say Wisconsin would be a state that didn't have public employee unions, um, everyone would be like, that's crazy, that's impossible. Like this is a good state that's, that has um, strong benefits for working class folks. Um, so what um, the Illinois AFLC, um, LF, I can't even talk, sorry, uh, Illinois AFL-CIO um, is trying to put forth, and unions um, and the Democratic Party, frankly, uh, is to enshrine the right for people to come together and say to their bosses, we want to form a union and bargain for our benefits. And so that's all that is. So what this does, is a lot of misinformation that's out there. Right now, people in Illinois can form unions. So we can already do this. This is already the law. There are already many unions in Illinois, um, all across Illinois. So this constitutional amendment doesn't change anything right now. But what it does change is potentially um, the lives for like my kids, for your kids someday, where down the road, 50 years from now, we can still have unions in Illinois so that people can come together and say, we want to bargain for safety issues. We want to bargain for um, our working conditions. We want to be part of the, of the process of our employer. And that's what we're trying to put in. So a yes vote um, on Amendment 1 would help protect those rights. And a no vote would say, we, just, we don't think that that should be in the Constitution. So that's kind of the backstory on the Workers' Rights Amendment. Did I mess anything up there, Kevin? No. Okay. Not, not that I'm aware of. Thank you, Dr. Swanson. Yeah. Uh, so 
uh, excellent job with overview of, of the ballot initiative. And then um, what I wanted to do is show some of the different offices. So a couple of different ways we can do this. Um, so we have two different offices that are at the national level. We have a senator, um, a Senate race, and we have a House of Representative race. And so all of us that live in Illinois, we're going to have the same uh, choices for the U.S. Senate race. So um, we call people who are in office who are running for re-election an incumbent. And you may recognize Tammy Duckworth. She's a Democrat. She's currently a U.S. Senator, and she is running for re-election. Um, and you can see her opponents. She's got a Republican opponent, Kathy Salvi, a Libertarian um, opponent as well, um, Bill Redpath. For, now, and I think I said this at the beginning, but I typed in the Moraine Valley address for, for this ballot. For many of you, uh, you may live in a different area and have some different uh, races. So please keep that in mind when I scroll through this. This is not exactly going to look like your ballot. But of course, if you go to PD, you'll see your exact races. Um, but we did want to pull this one up because I think a lot of us, myself included, do live in the 6th District. It encompasses a good part of the Moraine Valley uh, District. And so again, we have an incumbent, Sean Kasten, uh, as a Democrat, and he is facing off against Keith Pekow. Am I pronouncing yep. that correctly? Yep. And he is a mayor of Orland. Yep. And I just wanted to show, I think I have a map of that district. So you can see the six districts. We have 18 districts in Illinois. Um, and this is the 6th district, so it does encompass uh, where we are located in Moraine Valley, all the way down to the south to Tinley Park, and then um, all the way through parts of the western suburbs as well. So that's just one of these 18 uh, congressional district races that we have for the U.S. House of Representatives. And I would just add, so whether sometimes we may wrinkle our nose at living in the suburbs. You know, like living in the suburbs isn't as cool as living in the city or something. But when it comes to elections, the suburbs right now, nationally and in, and in Illinois, are really ground zero for the battle of who controls our government statewide and who controls the government nationally. And this race, the 6th District race, is one of the hottest races uh, across the country and will help decide who controls the majority in the House of Representatives. And so if you go to Moraine Valley, your odds are very high that you live in this district. And so this is a race that I would suggest you take a good look at and maybe do a little research on. Caston uh, is an incumbent, so he has been in office. So he has a voting record you can look at, see what he's supported, see where he stands. Um, and and Pekow, he has he's not been in Congress, but he is an elected official. And he actually made his name um, standing up to Pritzker against the pandemic. Um, I won't. I don't. I won't go into too much detail. But you can do some research on him. Um, he's kind of. Uh, he would not have appreciated some of the measures we've tried to take at Moraine Valley to protect our students, and that's sort of how he broke into, um, broke out of just being a local mayor into a larger voice that he felt like he could run for Congress. And so we're kind of seeing some of the in this race. You're you're seeing. Um, I don't want to overstep here, Kevin, but you're seeing some of the national issues that we've been debating the last three or four years over this pandemic coming to a head. And, and these, two, these two folks uh, represent those on all different kinds of levels. So. And one of the things that we'll talk about uh, towards the end of our presentation is what the consequences would be for um, 
currently we have a situation of we have a democratic president at the national level we have a Senate that has the most narrow majority for the Democrats. There's 50 Democrats, 50 uh, Republicans, and in tie-breaking scenarios, Kamala Harris, the vice president, would, uh, breaks the tie. So Democrats have that slight advantage there, and they have about a five-seat advantage in the House of Representatives. So that point of uh, the sixth district, this is one race among several that are really hotly contested that will help determine the um, makeup of whether the Democrats or Republicans have majority of the House of Representatives. So we'll talk more about those consequences. So just kind of a brief overview of some of these statewide races. These are also very consequential of a lot of the key issues that influence our everyday quality of life, uh, thinking about schools and funding for education, including higher education, colleges, uh, are determined by um, the, the, the races that I'm going to be going through here. So. Similar to what we saw before, we typically have three parties for each of these races, a Democrat, a Republican, and a Libertarian Party candidate. So we have Attorney General, Governor of Illinois, and if, if there's interest, you know, if you want to ask questions about what any of these offices do, we're happy to do that. We're also available at the end of this event for anybody who might have uh, follow-up questions that you'd like to ask us privately. Illinois Comptroller. Illinois Secretary of State, Illinois Treasurer, Lieutenant Governor, and then we are down to some of the statewide races. So we have a federal system in the United States. So we previously talked about how we have a US House of Representative and a US Senator that represent us in Washington, DC. But then of course, we've got a state level government down in Springfield where we also have a state level, a state representative, and a state senator. So again, these are the candidates for office for this particular district, and where you live, you're going to see um, some different names. And I would just add one thing with our state reps and state senators, they are some of the most accessible politicians that you can find. They're often in their offices, they're just down the street. For instance, Senator Cunningham, um, he's with a group uh, with, with Senator Burke, or I'm um, sorry, Representative Burke and Representative um, Hurley. They're just down the street. Uh, they, they, they have parts of Chicago, Mount Greenwood, all the way over across the suburbs. For instance, every, every Saturday in the fall, I think it's done now because it's getting cold, they used to do like yoga in the park. They would do coffee at the local Starbucks if you look on their website. So sometimes people think like, you know, I don't get to have lunch, even though I might like to, with President Biden or, or, or you know, or my local congressman. Um, but these people really impact our lives and our, our laws, and you can literally get to know them, and they can get to know you because they're not that far away, and there's a lot of them. So your state rep represents only a small part of, a, of groupings of communities, and they have events all the time. And so it's really easy to go and meet them and to talk to them and just see generally if you like them. Um, they're some of the most accessible people that are out there, and they have big impact on us. So I would just... I would just like to give a mention of that because sometimes people like to look down on, oh, those politicians, they're just out to get our money. But once you actually get to know them, some of these jobs are really like glorified volunteer jobs. I mean, they don't make that much money as a politician. Like if you wanted to be rich in your life, the number one thing I would say for you not to do is run for elected office. Like that makes no sense. That's not a way to get rich. So like for instance, Representative Burke, who's been a really good friend of Moraine Valley and has been very great for us, 
she, they got her to run for the local library board in Evergreen Park because they needed someone to run because she was a mother and was active in the community. So she ran for library board and won. It was very active in support of the library. I'm a librarian, so that's how I know this. And then when the state rep position opened, they got her to run for state rep because they liked her. So she didn't have this like grand plan like she's going to be you know, the president of the United States, she cares about her community and wanted to run. And so that's my like, yay. In an in a environment where it's so easy to be anti-politician, I do like to be um, pro-politician at various times because um, it is a thankless job and it's a job they do seven days a week and they sacrifice a lot to do it. And they, most of them don't retire owning a Bahamian island somewhere, right? They don't, they're not like um, wealthy people. So a few people, now J.B. Pritzker is different. He started wealthy. That's a whole different story, right? But most of our local people, you can go down the street and meet them and get to know them. So, yeah. Excellent point. Um, now, I, I did browse through the rest of that ballot, and you can see there's a whole bunch of different races, and I wasn't going to go through each one of those in detail. But one key race, depending upon where you live, and um, what I'm showing right now is the Illinois State Supreme Court um, districts. So we happen to have five of them, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, five of them. And three of these, uh, so we actually happen to have three state Supreme Court seats in the first district. Because look, the first district's Cook County. Cook County does have uh, significantly more population than these other districts. Uh, so that's why they have additional state Supreme Court uh, seats. This is a unique scenario in this 2022 election. So we have seven members of the Illinois State Supreme Court. The current makeup is four Democrats and three Republicans. So there happens to be a race in the second district, that's McHenry, Kane, part of Kendall, and DeKalb counties. Um, and I forget if I said Lake County. And then we also have uh, the third district, I couldn't find a page there, and I was like, wow, am I looking at the right map? But there it is. So the third district, which is DePage, Will, Kankakee, Iroquois, Grundy, LaSalle, and Bureau. So depending upon where you live, I'm guessing there's many of you in this room who do live in this third district like I do. This is a very consequential state Supreme Court race. So currently, as I said, since, uh, since 1970, since we've had the most recent Illinois state constitution, we've had four Democrat, or we've had a, a Democratic majority at the uh, state Supreme Court. If Republicans win both the second and the third um, district uh, races for state Supreme Court, they would then have a majority in the state Supreme Court. So you're probably being exposed to, once again, a lot of campaign ads on TV about these races. Um, for the southwestern suburbs, the, the two candidates are uh, Republican Supreme Court Justice Michael Burke uh, he's running against Democrat Mary Kay O'Brien, who's a former state legislature, and she's been an appellate court judge for 20 years. So these are very consequential races that, you know, they interpret the law. They interpret our state constitution. They interpret our state laws. Uh, so a lot of main issues like abortion and gun-related uh, issues, redistricting-related issues, even pension issues, um, can be determined by these uh, state Supreme Court members. So it's a really key race. And uh, I do have a lot of students who sometimes say, ah, you know, I just don't know what to vote for or who to vote for, uh, especially with some of these judges. 
But they do have a cue, a shortcut that can help us, and they, they have these labels of Democrat and Republican. And I think many people do understand some of the basic differences between Democrats and Republicans. Um, but of course, ideally, you'll, you'll look up these individual candidates and do a little bit of research for them. But at, you know, just know that you do have that uh, cue, uh, Democrat and Republican. And the Illinois Bar Association does ratings on all judges. So if you don't know, and, and they do, you know, they, they come at it from a legalistic standpoint. But um, there will be a list of judges that you can vote for on your ballot. And it's, it's I, and I'm a political junkie, I'm very involved in politics, but I don't keep track of what every single judge does. You, like, you couldn't do it, right? But they do. And so if you have someone who's kind of crazy, they're not going to get the, the endorsement from the Illinois Bar Association. And that's normally um, a, a good indicator if they actually do their job well. And so I would just go to um, Illinois Bar Association um, judge, like endorsements or something, just Google it, and you'll get a list. So then you can, and you can print, just so you know, any printed paper you can bring into your ballot booth. So if you want to make a list of notes, you can go to vote, you can bring that with, and you can check your notes. You don't have to memorize it. It's not a test. Uh, and decide who to vote for, who not to vote for. So, so it's good. Great point. And to, and to that, um, one of the candidates in the second district is actually listed by the American Bar Association as not recommended. Um, so that is uh, Republican Mark Curran, if you happen to live in that uh, district. Can I just mention yeah. that? As, right, so this is, and I don't know his whole biography, but he's never been a judge. He was a... <laughs> State rep, yeah, but and so he's decided to be. He wanted to be. He wants to be on the Supreme Court, which helps manages all of the, of the judicial process of the state of Illinois, and it's sort of a big jump <laughs> to make. And so that's why the lawyers are sort of like, yeah, you're not qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. So that they, they are kind of a watchdog in this case. Okay, so one of the questions I I posed to my students last week of uh, in in preparation for this event is trying to ask them like what key questions do you want to know? And one of the key themes that came up is like, why is this election important? Have you ever heard that this election is the most important election in, in your lifetime? I'm saying sorry. Every, Every election, election, right? Right, but what if it's true? <laughs> what if each election becomes more significant than the one that preceded it? And I know it is a trite statement, and I don't want to over-dramatize things, but yet, in my opinion, and now this is my opinion, this election is really key. I would argue that democracy itself is on the line. Um, one of, and, and, and the way that I'm gonna frame it is this way. When you ask Americans about democracy, and as this survey did from the New York Times Siena poll um, just last week, asking people about how they feel about democracy, about seven out of every 10 Americans believe that democracy is at risk, right? Democracy is fragile. It's not guaranteed that we're always gonna have this system, right? And so we have to make it that way. We have to protect. We are the guardians of democracy ourselves as citizens. We have a responsibility. We inherited this system. You know, that kind of famous line of make things better than you found it. And I think that's up to us to make sure that we do that. Um, so one of the things that's bothersome to me is, is if you can see this line here is that seven out of every 10 Americans think democracy is at risk but few of us think it's actually an important problem. And to me, this is the problem. This is the story. You know, I, obviously there's a lot of key differences between 
uh, Democrats, Republicans, and Libertarians. Um, I don't think any one party has a monopoly on having all the best ideas on issues. But I think before you can honestly grapple with issues and, and legislate over issues, you've got to have um, integrity of elections. You've got to make sure that you, you know, the winner of elections takes office and a, a peaceful transition of power. And of course, that hasn't always been the case uh, most recently. Um, I'm harking back to uh, January of two, 2021, January 6th, where we had a violent insurrection, in part based on a lie of the election being rigged and stolen. And happy to get into that if anybody would like to discuss that further about, you know, but there's just no evidence in, uh, that this election was rigged or stolen. And unfortunately, this is not just a one-off. Like, I get it, um, former president's no longer in the ballot, and you might think that, oh, January insurrection was two years ago, it doesn't really matter anymore. But um, Washington Post did analysis of looking at all House of Representative candidates, Senate candidates, uh, gubernatorial candidates, so governors, um, attorney general, secretary of state, and they found that of all of these candidates, a majority of them, almost 300 in all, have either denied the election results or cast doubt, uh, doubts on the 2020 election. So um, it's still a, an issue. And if it's likely that many of these candidates are going to win their races. And so then you have people in power who don't believe in you know, uh, following the outcome of an election, of what the will of the people are, the, of how the voters decided, of, of, of not allowing the right people to take office who won the most votes. Um, and I, I think in particular, one of the, there's a lot of races that are really important, but having governors and attorney generals and secretary of states who oversee and certify the elections, these are the people, so this is a 2022 election. When we have the next presidential election in 2024, these are the people who are going to be in office, who are going to be certifying the election. Um, so. This is uh, an ongoing threat, um, and we, I think, as citizens have to be aware of this. I know there's a lot of different issues um, that are important to voters, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit, but I think I would be remiss as a political science, uh, political science professor and a lover of democracy to not mention this first as what I think is one of the most consequential aspects about this election, is that it's up to us to continue to strengthen democracy. I so I would just add, and it's... To me, it's like the January 6th is, is an example. I worry about the future, right? That's what, I think that's what Kevin's saying. There's a sizable um, percentage of the Republican Party, just to be frank about it, that has their one of their main tools now is to deny the results of an election if they lose. So when we, by all objective measures, we have one of the strongest elected election systems in the world with checks and balances, um, with insurances that voter fraud doesn't happen. And there, there are, you know, it's a big country. All elections are very local. So are there times where there's some errors? Yes. So it's not like there's, it's perfect everywhere through. But there is no evidence and there's no, um, you know, there's really been no cases of widespread voter fraud. But what we have to have by the public is that if we have an election, we have to trust that that election is, is valid. And so if we don't trust that election, that's where the erosion starts to happen, right? So you have one party that says they're cheating. If that's always their response, they're cheating, then you start to get where we lose trust and we start to go down a very dangerous, dangerous 
rabbit hole. And I think this is an election where we need to stop that. And I think one of the challenges that we face is that in midterm elections, on average, the folks that tend to vote Democratic tend to not show up, right? So it tends to be marginalized communities, tends to be younger folks. So just looking around this room, I'm guessing many of you are under the age of 30, and you are people that are less likely to show up in this election than the next election for president. And so then those are the things um, that, that is a setup for issues uh, down the road, and that's what we're, we're very nervous about. Yeah, actually, uh, Troy brings up a great point about voter turnout, and I had uh, I have a slide on that, and so we will come back to kind of seeing the different demographics. But Sorry, I mean to jump ahead. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I love it, and, and it's some things are so important that we need to bring it up more than once. So I just have to say this one more time. I feel very uncomfortable having you know, I I've been teaching for 17 years at Moraine Valley. And at least for the first 10 or more, I had many students who like always want to ask me what, um, you know, what party I support or what candidates I like, and, and I'd never tell them. And um, you know, they always kind of like, oh, they have no idea where I stand. And maybe that's not the case with my more recent students. So I just want to say I'm not comfortable talking about elections in this way. But we have Secretary of State candidates, and I'm just going to mention one by name, Jim Marchant. He is a, G, a Republican nominee for Secretary of State Nevada. And he stated, when my coalition of Secretary of State candidates, so what he's saying is that when a group of, there's like 11 of them who are essentially election deniers, when they go around the country and when they get elected, we're going to fix the whole country and President Trump is going to be president again in 2024. Look, if President Trump gets the most votes in 2024, like he did in 2016, that's great. He should take office. What we don't want is Secretary of State's putting their thumb on the scale. That's what's very concerning to me. So that's something that I think we have to keep in mind. Um, and so also just democracy, you know, people in Ukraine are literally fighting for their own democracy right now, um, putting their lives on the line. And, um, you know, many people uh, in my classes we talk about how all of us in this room, you know, we have earned this right to vote because of all of the struggles from people from previous generations, some of which who put their life on the line. We have World War II vets. We have activists who struggled hard to get the right to vote for women, for blacks, for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, most recently in 1971. All these groups had to struggle to get the right to vote. We have it. So we have to use it. Um, so. Why is this election uh, important other than just democracy? As Troy and I mentioned earlier, this is really uh, an election at the national level for who controls Congress. I already stated who currently controls the House of Representatives and Republican Senate, that's Democrats. But it's by a very narrow margin. And so currently Democrats have a five-seat advantage in the House of Representatives and a one-seat advantage essentially in the Senate. So Republicans just need to flip one seat in the House. There's 35 races. Essentially Republicans would need to win 18 of those 35 Senate races. And then they would need to win um, five races in the House of Representatives to take a majority. What's the likelihood that they're going to do that? Pretty high. And here's how we know this. We use history as a, as, a, as a guide. Since World War II, if you're looking at all midterm elections, here's the average number 
of seats that the party in power, which currently is Democrats, they have the party of the presidency, on average, House of Representatives lose an average of 26 seats in the House and four in the Senate. Some of the other kind of factors that we would look at to, to kind of assess how many, you know, which party has an advantage heading into the midterm, we look at presidential approval rating, and I think I have a, a line on this. Biden's, this is again from that same New York Times Siena poll. This is of likely voters, by the way. Biden's approval is really low. 45% of likely voters strongly disagree or disapprove of his handling of the presidency. Another 13% somewhat disapprove. So his approval rating is very low. He's not on the ballot, but if you're a Democrat for House or Senate, you know that people are gonna be thinking about Joe Biden and how much they like Democrats. So that's, that's a headwind that they're facing. And we're gonna talk about issues like inflation that's historically high, highest inflation since the early 1980s. So for all of these factors, Democrats are facing really difficult headwinds. As two examples of when we've had midterm elections fairly recently, this is how the party in power. In 2018, when Trump was president, his first midterm election, Republicans lost 41 seats in control of, this, of the House of Representatives that flipped to Democrats. In 2010, Obama lost, and Democrats lost 63 seats. So that's, that's, that's what I'm saying here. It's very, very likely that Republicans can win five seats. It's, it's not that many seats to try to flip, especially considering these historical factors. So what if Republicans take the House and or Senate? And I, I definitely think they'll take the House. I think there's, it's kind of a coin flip right now of whether they'll have control of the Senate. Well, the first thing that they'll try to do is any of their priorities. And um, I think one priority that they'll have right off the bat is making the 2017 tax cuts permanent. Um, they, they, when they passed, it was temporary. And I think one of their um, key parts of their agenda is to make those tax cuts permanent. Um, many of them have talked about a national abortion ban, perhaps at 15 weeks. Um, that's something that they could do. Um, there's been some more discussion recently about entitlement cuts. So as you probably know, we have uh, high national uh, deficits, which is in a single year, about $1.4 trillion deficit that we spend more than we collect. And we have a uh, huge national debt of over $30 trillion. So one, one idea from Republicans is try to reduce that deficit by uh, cutting entitlements. Um, entitlements, what do they mean? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, programs that many, especially lower income individuals or senior citizens have come to rely on. So that's a possibility. What's definitely going to happen is gridlock. You have a Democratic president and you have a Republican House of Representatives and or Senate. It's very likely then that they are not going to agree on any bill that, they, that one side proposes. So any of these ideas that Republicans have about making tax cuts permanent or trying to cut Social Security and Medicare, un, you know, unlikely to pass because Joe Biden can veto it, right? So when we have times of divided government, especially when we're so polarized between Democrats and Republicans, our institution of Congress is going to be very unlikely to get anything done. So that's something that I can almost promise is going to happen. Have you heard of Hunter Biden. Okay. For those of you who haven't, you will. 
the U.S. House of Representatives are going to have a bunch of investigations, potentially of Joe Biden, the president, uh, potentially of members of uh, you know, uh, his administration, um, because that's what we've heard from many Republican um, candidates is that they want to investigate um, the administration and, and uh, in particular his son, uh, Hunter Biden, who's not a part of his administration, but is a relative of his, obviously. So you're going to see a lot of uh, investigations and you're likely going to see some impeachment charges being brought potentially against Joe Biden, because that's what um, some of the members of the Republican caucus have said, uh, or of his staff. One thing that you're going to need to, you're, you're going to hear about, a lot about is the debt ceiling. This is a really weird scenario that only the United States has, but Congress has the power of the purse. They decide all spending and revenue issues. So they can decide, like I said, when they decided to cut taxes in 2017, they make that decision. When they pass um, bills that increase spending, they do that as well. So secondarily, we, we have the second part where we have to raise the amount of debt that the, that the Treasury uh, can pay for. And the example I was giving earlier to my students in class who asked about it, um, if I buy this shirt at the store and I put it on my credit card, I sign the credit card, I decide, I agree that I'm going to pay for this shirt. And then five weeks later when I get my credit card statement, it'd be akin to this debt ceiling. And me saying, well, no, I'm going to prove that I'm against you know, debt and deficits and I'm not going to pay for this credit card statement. It makes no sense. We've, I agreed to buy this shirt when I bought it at the store. So Congress has agreed to their spending. Now they have to pay for the debt ceiling. So if and when Republicans hold the House of Representatives, it's very likely that before they agree to raise the debt ceiling, they're going to ask for concessions from um, Democrats like entitlement cuts. So that's something to potentially keep your eye on. And if we were to default on, on, the, on our debt, the full faith and credit of the United States um, uh, you know, agreeing to pay for debt that we, we've, we've had in the past, it's going to be a major crisis to the world's financial system. Not trying to scare you, but these are issues that I'm sure you're not really thinking about in October of 2022, but could arise in um, 2023. Senate confirmation. So if Republicans hold the Senate as they have a good chance of doing, then any nominee that Joe Biden has to serve in his administration such as um, Secretary of Education would have to be approved by the Senate. And so if you don't have a majority of the senators, that's something that um, could be blocked. Um, one thing that comes to mind is uh, federal court uh, nominees, including Supreme Court nominees. I don't expect there to be any Supreme Court nominees, but sometimes older people pass away. And as you may have heard in 2020, was this? 2020, trying to keep my dates right. January of 2020, when Justice Scalia passed away, maybe it was February of 2020, Justice Scalia passed away in Obama nominated Supreme Court Justice Merrick Garland. It's not a Supreme Court justice because the Senate at that time, controlled by Republicans, refused to have a hearing on him. So that's a, a very distinct possibility. Um, and there was about 100 different uh, district and circuit court openings when Trump became president because Obama was unable to nominate them because he didn't get Senate approval of them. So that's one other possible scenario uh, of 
if this Republicans take the Senate. And then one other aspect is foreign policy. And right now, of course, you've heard a lot about the war in Ukraine. The United States has given a lot of money to support Ukraine. In part, they're an ally. Um, they, um, they're a key uh, democratic country. They were invaded by their neighbor. And uh, that neighbor, Russia, is an enemy of the United States in many ways. And so um, one other thing that could happen is that um, Republicans could say, you know, we've got enough problems here in the United States. Um, we, we want to keep that money here, and enough is enough. We're not going to send any more money to Ukraine. Um, that's a real possibility. There's a lot of other ones, but I just wanted to highlight a few. So why should you vote? I think we've given you a few different ideas now, right? The stake of uh, Congress, all of the state-level decisions. Just want to bring that point home. We have a lot of close races. Your vote could be the pivotal vote. And, and sometimes I go backwards and think about in 2020, just at the presidential election, roughly 40, 50,000 votes uh, that had gone a different direction in 2020, and we'd have a different president. Many of our uh, states were decided by less than 20,000 votes each in 2020. Lower level races, sometimes this, this margin is much closer. So your, your vote can determine who wins office. And then, of course, what kind of policies we get. And these statewide races, as I tried to say earlier, many issues now are decided at the state level. And so your, your vote is really, really pivotal in that way. So if you're, um, if you're not as interested in the national issues and you think, well, these things don't affect me, let me offer um, a couple items that I think do affect you that I think if I was a college student, I would be thinking about as I was casting my ballot. One of the most debated issues that we face right now is who should get access to a college education and how much should you pay? So these are things that you probably think about. Um, that impact all of you. So, for instance, in Illinois, one of the reasons why Moraine Valley Community College is um, a more financially advantageous option than some of our competitors is because part of your tuition is actually paid by the state of Illinois. So it may cost us 300 and some odd dollars per credit hour for you to come here. That's what it costs somewhere in there. But you only pay 100 and some odd dollars to come here. And why? Because Springfield very nicely um, as part of our agreement, they send us money to pay for you. So every student that comes here, we get money from Springfield. Now, in the previous administration, Bruce Rauner, it was the governor, he actually cut that money and caused a big financial crisis for all the community colleges across Illinois. J.B. Pritzker um, has given us that money back and actually gave a 5% increase of that money. Um, again, I'm not necessarily um, advocating that you should vote for Pritzker, but you should at least maybe take a look and see what his opponent, Darren Bailey, has offered. And, the, and who approves that? The state senators and state reps that I mentioned down the street, right? They look at that policy and they come here. Right now, there's a commission that's looking at textbook costs because there's a concern that textbooks are expensive and our students that can barely afford to come to our college can barely also afford, barely afford to pay for their textbooks. So that might sound like something that might be familiar to all of you after you've had to pay for your textbooks. So there's definitely one party in Springfield that's interested in reducing those textbook costs and one party that isn't. And so again, I won't do a commercial, but these are things that you should be thinking about. At the national level, there's conversations about um, Pell Grants 
and about other funding about how much federal money should come to students for student aid to allow you to come to college. And, you know, there's like a famous saying that all of us that are in community colleges have, if you don't get into Harvard or you don't get into Princeton, you normally have a fallback school that you're going to go to, right? But if you can't afford to come to Moraine Valley Community College, where else do you have to go, right? It's, it's your, get your public library card and go down the street to Oaklawn or to go to Orland, right? We, th those of us that are at, at community colleges believe deeply that you should be able to come here at an affordable rate and get a college education. We're your community college in your backyard. And these people that we're talking about set the policies that allow you to come here and to help us determine how much tuition we have to charge you depending on how much money they want to give us, right? And so um, if you don't buy the idea that we need to save democracy, <laughs> um, you might want to at least buy the idea that you should vote because it impacts your pocketbook and your access to what higher education is. So just to bring it to very down to the grassroots of us right here in this room, I think. And I believe in democracy too, Kevin, just so you know. <laughs> so now I want to get a little nerdy here. And one of the things that we do as political scientists, and my students are familiar with this. Let me see if I can make this just a little bit bigger. And this also goes to a point that uh, Troy had raised earlier. With like the laser pointer? Yeah. Yeah. So the first point that I'm going to make is, so why do people vote the way they do? There's typically, as political science, we try to understand like four main variables or factors that might impact the way people vote. The two that I'm not going to talk about is party identification. Democrats tend to vote for Democrats, Republicans vote for Republicans. That's straightforward. Second one that I'm not going to talk about is perception of candidates, qualifications of candidates, their experience, and so forth. I think that plays less of a role in today's elections than it used to in the past. So the two categories I am going to talk about are demographics. Sometimes we, we call them sociological factors, statistics that we have about the people. How can we categorize uh, people based on traits that they have? So for example, start with race and ethnicity. And I apologize why I'm jumping around here. While I'm on this slide, I'll just make this point. One really key demographic in this election, and for those of you who are looking forward to the 2024 election, is Latinos. In this upcoming cycle, it's expected that this group alone will be approximately one out of every five voters. And of the total electorate nationwide in 2022, but as I put up on the screen, there's a few states where um, the percentage of Latinos is going to be higher, like in Arizona, in Nevada, in Florida, in Colorado. And um, Dr. Swanson mentioned this earlier, so now I just wanted to point it out, of voter turnout by demographics. So this first slide, this takes us back to 1986. And if you can read this key here, the blue line is representing non-Hispanic white, the red line represents uh, non-Hispanic black, and the green line is listed as Hispanic. So you can see every different election cycle, so this was 2020, 
and notice that every single group was above 50%. But um, Latin, Latinos was the lowest, whites were the highest. What I want you to focus on is the, uh, the, these midterm elections. So this would be 2018, this would be 2014, 2010. So in many of these midterm elections, voter turnout is significantly lower. And showing a couple other demographics here, the, I think the last one I'll show on this slide, because looking around the room, I see a lot of people who happen to be under the age of 30. And notice that when we use uh, age as a group category, that the older group of voters, 16 and plus, have the highest voter turnout. But one thing that stands out to me is it really never goes below 70%, whether it's a midterm election or a presidential election. Whereas the youngest group of voters, um, in 2018, I, I will have you know, that was 2018 had the highest voter turnout for a midterm election in 100 years. So even though um, 18 to 29 year olds, it was only about 35%, that was record breaking in 2018. But notice like 2014 and 2010, I think we pointed out Democrats lost 63 seats in 2010. So that's one thing to just keep in mind is that, as Dr. Swanson mentioned, generally speaking, in off-year elections, voter turnout is lower for all groups, but it's particularly lower against some groups that are disproportionately more likely to support Democrats. Younger voters, minority voters, uh, people who live in urban areas, voter turnout is typically lower among those groups. I guess the other point that I wanted to make about um, Latinos is that this is a growing demographic and it's one that Democrats have been able to have a pretty strong advantage amongst. In 2008, 2012, Obama and Democrats were able to get about two thirds of every Latino voter. I want to say in 2016, it was around 60%, 2020. Here's, here's, here's the point that I'm trying to make. In 2020, Trump improved his vote amongst Latinos from 2016 to 2020. He improved by about 10%. And so one of the things a lot of election prognosticators, people trying to predict who's going to win, what, which party has advantages going in the forward, is will Democrat... Democrats are still going to win a majority of Latino voters in 2022. But it's not just winning a majority. It's you need to run up big advantages among some of these groups. So one, one thing to keep in mind, if you're following the election on election night, is to look at voter turnout and look at the margins of victories um, for, for this key voting block. Um, and then a couple other just kind of nerdy observations of mine is kind of looking at uh, different uh, support between Democrats and Republicans that has really emerged recently. This is called the diploma divide, but basically Democrats have a huge advantage amongst those with a college degree. Um, and Republicans have a, a smaller advantage, but an advantage amongst those without a college degree. So I want to say for 2020, it was a 12-point advantage that Democrats had uh, for those with a college education compared to those without. 
another key trend that we see is like where do you live rural areas like where i'm from in nebraska are are, are strong kind of republican strongholds where republicans do very very well in urban areas like chicago um, tend to be much more democratic in 2018 and 2020 one of the key trends that helped democrats win the majority of house of representatives and for the presidency in 2020 was that a group uh the, su the suburbs that had historically been more leaning towards Republicans um, had uh, gone towards Democrats in both of those uh, two, two most recent elections. But Trump won't be on the ballot in 2022, so there's some concern amongst Democrats about whether they'll be able to maintain that advantage going forward. And I think the last one that I was going to talk about in terms of demographics is gender. Um, Democrats have about a 15-point advantage amongst women, whereas Republicans have an eight-point advantage amongst men. And so another key group that could swing elections, to, uh, who turns out, um, there's an expectation when we start combining this with issues. Um, there's a big expectation this summer when uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade that Democrats were going to have this huge upswell, particularly amongst women voters who are getting registered to vote, and that that could help swing the elections towards Democrats. And then the last slide that I have, before we turn it over to you, of any questions that you have, um, this is from the uh, New York Times Siena poll. And um, I think it might be good to just actually pull that up. So you can see it with your own eyes. It's take me just a moment to scroll to it. But the number one issue, according to this survey that was done last week from the Siena New York Times was, let's see if I can make this just a little bit bigger for you to see. The economy was number one, and I guess that means jobs in the stock market. Second uh, most prominent issue on voters' minds was emphasis and so forth. Third was abortion. And then uh, you can see the rest, immigration, 5%, but um, the only other issue that pulled above 5% was democracy. And so I would love to talk more about this, but I think I've kind of gone on a tangent and probably spoke long enough. And I need to learn to take good turns. So I'll turn it back over to Dr. Swanson and then turn it back to you as a group to see what kind of questions or comments you have. I, would, I won't add too much. I would just say there is a kind of irony in this election where it feels like the Democrats are really taking it on the chin for inflation. So you go to the gas pump, you see how expensive gas is, and you know, the, there's the, you know, thanks, thanks Joe Biden for that, um, even though he has not much to do with that. But at the same time, Democrats have worked through this pandemic to really um, save the economy in so many ways. We have one of the hottest job markets, wage growth is high. Um, you can, you know, one of the reasons our enrollment is down so much at Moraine Valley right now is because people who might otherwise come here out getting better jobs, um, either in the trades or even in um, the service industry, right? And so um, it's like on the one hand, the Democrats are paying the price for the inflation, but they're not getting the recognition for the other parts of the economy that are working so well. So um, I'll just leave it at that. Like there's, there's so much um, divisiveness out there. And with, you know, Kevin mentioned turnout matters sometimes taking actions so that your opponents don't vote is just as important in, for our political parties, unfortunately, as getting your own people to vote. So there's a lot of games being played around the country on who gets the right to vote, how are they doing things to keep people from showing up at the ballot box, limiting access to voting, 
um, those kind of things are definitely happening. So I'll, I'll pause it there. But So I'd like you to think about any question, anything that you've heard about with this election, any ideas you have, anything that maybe you agree or disagree with what we've said. And while you're thinking about that, and we have a, a microphone to come around, I just want to add one more point to what Dr. Swanson said. And that is, um, you know, first of all, I'm in a pretty comfortable position. I have a secure job. I, I feel good about my pay. Um, you know, I don't, it's annoying to pay more for gas, but it, it isn't like I have to not eat that day because I fill, fill up my gas tank. And I really am I'm empathetic to voters. I understand how costly inflation is. But then to understand like how you know, Joe Biden or Democrats, they don't set gasoline prices, right? This is a global commodity. Um, gas prices are high everywhere. Inflation's high everywhere. In fact, it's higher in many European countries than it is here, right? And as Dr. Swanson pointed out, there's a trade-off with, with um, uh, inflation in the economy. We have historically low in, uh, unemployment, 3.5%. And we have historically high inflation. The Federal Reserve, the only entity that can really do anything about inflation is fighting it hard. By the way, we don't vote for those people, but they have raised interest rates on my calculation. I think they've raised interest rates by 3.25% in a fairly rapid manner just within the last year, right? So they're doing everything they can to fight that. Those of you who have had an econ class though, when, in, when the job market's hot like it is, inflation's generally going to be a little bit higher, right? You typically don't have a scenario where unemployment is super high and inflation's really high. So we, it, it's kind of like one or the other. It's, it's tough to always get a sweet spot. Maybe we've been a little spoiled where we did have low inflation and low, relatively low employment at the same time. But those are pretty unique periods in US history. And again, I think it's very privileged for me to say this, but sometimes higher gas prices, especially when there's a war in Ukraine and these are key areas of the world that are producing oil and gas, there's going to be some disruptions and paying an extra dollar or so at the gas tank um, in this kind of global fight on democracy is, is sometimes a sacrifice we have to make. But anyway, that's my opinion. Now it's over to you. What questions, thoughts, comments, reactions, concerns, anything for the 2022 election? Yeah, hello. Um, how do you believe this uh, the midterm election will affect gerrymandering and then therefore subsequently the how will that affect the 2024 presidential election? Thank you. So gerrymandering is a really key topic. Um, those of you who don't understand, we have congressional districts. I showed you those boundaries for the sixth district. Those were created brand new just for this election. Every 10 years we do a census. So in 2020 we did a census. Based on that census data, some states gain a number, a House of Representative, and other states, like us in Illinois, lose a House of Representative seat. So these boundaries change. When you manipulate boundaries in a politically motivated way, we call it gerrymandering. To answer the question that was asked, Gerrymandering for this particular election is actually playing much less of a role than it has historically. According to the 
analysis that I've read, it's likely that Republicans, because more states are gerrymandered to favor Republicans than Democrats. Uh, states like Texas, states like Ohio, states like even Pennsylvania, North Carolina. So Republicans are likely going to win probably three or four seats because of gerrymandering. But that number is historically low. In previous elections, it was definitely in the double digits. Uh, in part because some states like Illinois have been gerrymandered to favor Democrats uh, to offset the Republican advantages in those other states. So those lines have already been set for the 2022, 2024, 2026, 2028, and 2030 election cycles. So there isn't any new gerrymandering going forward that's going to impact the 2024 election. I, one thing I would add, um, and I, I, gerrymandering is something we should worry about because what it does is it makes our districts more radical. So right, instead of having a lot of moderate districts, politicians, you, you think that voters get to select their candidates, but when you have gerrymandering, what you have is politicians selecting their voters and they draw lines for districts they think they can win, right? But on top of that, we as a country are self-sorting ourselves by um, a lot of the, the demographics that make up the parties. So if you're a Republican, you're less likely to live on the south side of Chicago. And if you're a Democrat, you're less likely to live in rural like Decatur, Illinois, right? And we, when we move, um, if you're a Republican, you're more likely to move somewhere like Texas and if you're a Democrat, you're more likely to move somewhere like California or Illinois. And so what we're seeing is people are moving into neighborhoods where people already think like themselves, which is, is not something that we can control or not control by gerrymandering. And it's also something we should be worried about when we think about this, um, the health of democracy. Because what we get are politicians who get reelected not because they actually pass legislation. They get reelected because they stop the other side from passing legislation. So you get a part. You get a point where your your government actually doesn't solve problems that your country faces, and that's something we all should be worried about. And we should try to reward politicians who compromise and actually make um, successful legislation that make our lives better. To Dr. Swanson's point, um, it is a major problem, and I didn't mean to diminish it. Of our 435 House of Representative races. According to, there's several uh, organizations like this, but the Cook Political Port Report is one that tries to analyze um, how competitive a, a particular district is and which party has an advantage. So we have 435 House of Representative races, and less than 35 of them are really up for grabs. That's in large part due to what he was just referring to, that we have either created districts that are so strongly demographics that lean Democrat or strongly demographics that lean Republican. So there's very few seats that are actually up for grabs where we don't know who's going to win. And I just wanted to, if you look up on the screen right now that I'm showing, uh, I could scroll. This is the 2020 election. This is back when Illinois had one additional House of Representative race and these district boundaries are different now. But if I just scroll over some of these races, um, you'll see that, make this a little bit bigger, almost all of them were uncompetitive. You know, you have re Republicans winning 73% of the vote in most of their races, and then you get to the Chicagoland area and, and candidates are winning 80% of the vote, 73% of the vote. So there's really not much incentive for these people who are winning their election 
by 50 point advantage to work with the other side. Uh, so it does create major problems and something that we definitely need to fix, but partly we can't fix all of it because of that geographic sorting that you're yeah. talking about. Yep, sure. Other questions about the 2022 election? Uh, here's a question. So some of this is so overwhelming. If you want, we're going to suggest a strategy. So if, for students, like what are your next steps? So if you're not a regular voter, many of you are probably just old enough to vote. Um, so maybe you missed the last election. How should they, what's, what's the next steps? Check registration status, pick a candidate. I, I don't know if, if you have thoughts, Kevin, or others have, from the audience maybe have thoughts. I mean, I, I think like what would what would be the first steps to do to really take action if you wanted to vote? Uh, I just had another question that I just thought of. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah. We can do you think do you think the two party system we have? Well, I know there's more parties, but typically just two. Do you think it leads to any negative effects for voters and turning people off to maybe you know politics and like dividing people more? Do you think you know there's another solution for that? Probably, but you know, probably. You know, people in power probably won't want to give that up. So it is a problem. And ideally, you know, you go to the supermarket and you can choose between dozens of brands of cereal. And we like choices. But essentially, when it comes to politics in the United States, we get two choices. I love the idea of third parties. I think they bring up great ideas. However, in this moment, here, here, here's my, my final solution, or my final point. Unless we change the electoral rules of the winner-take-all system, where you win by a single vote and you get everything, there's no points for second place in the system. If, if we change like many democracies do in the world to have a proportional system, so if a libertarian party gets 15% of the vote, they would get 15% of the seats in their legislative body then third parties are going to explode in the United States. But we have to change the electoral rules. As it currently stands with the winner-take-all system, you're going to have two major political parties um, because they're going to consolidate under one of those two major labels because they have the best chance of winning. So um, I, I wish we had a different system, but with the system that we have, you know, I was showing my students in my class, and like, especially the 2020 or 2016 election, if you look at some of those states that were close between Hillary Clinton, Democrat, and Republican Donald Trump, um, some states where it was decided, like Michigan, by 11,000 votes, and there's third-party candidates that are getting, you know, Green Party candidate that's getting 50,000 votes, that can swing the election. That did swing the election for that particular state. So it's, it's hard for me to vote for a third party when I know the incentive and rule system that is in place. I don't see how you make the change without opening it up to other abuses is the problem. But I would, I guess I'd make a counter argument to Kevin's point. I guess I don't, I, we, yes, we have two, two major parties. But when you look at those parties, what you see are coalitions of smaller groups that come together who work together to operate those parties. So for instance, traditionally in the Republican Party, you now have um, religious conservatives 
You have um, libertarians who think government should just be left out of everything and everyone should just do their own thing. You have um, business groups like the Chamber of Commerce, and they come together um, and negotiate this party to set policy to move forward. Um, I think you've seen the Republican Party get eroded away a little bit by Trumpism, whatever Trumpism is going to have. In, in the Democratic Party, you have coalitions of, like, for instance, very strong in Illinois is the, the Black Caucus in both the Senate and in the House of Representatives who come together to, to advocate for that community. You have organized labor who come together to fight for union rights and for working class folks. Um, you have, um, like Kevin had said, um, some of the, the, um, the like folks with more education, the kind of progressives. I don't know, that's probably not the, I'm, you haven't prepped appropriately. That's probably not the right way to put it. But come together as a group to negotiate how that party is going to move forward as a Democratic Party. And where does that happen? Um, a lot of that happened this last June in the primaries, right, where these groups of people will run candidates um, in the primary, and whoever wins then runs now in the general election. And so when you see, you see a lot of policy ideas, you see tension within the parties, um, that's where some of that happens, is leading up to that primary where we decide as a group who we're going to support and how we're going to move forward when we run against either the Republicans or Democrats, depending on where that is. So one way to get involved is to think about what you believe in. Maybe, it's the, maybe you're worried about climate change. Maybe you're worried about racial justice. Maybe you're worried about um, higher education. There are countless organizations um, in our neighborhoods of people who are activists who are working to make change um, in, in these parties and to have a voice in these parties. And it's very easy to go and to join and to be part of that. So, so yes, we have two big parties, and there's some problems with that. But I see small coalitions come together to push those parties in different directions. And, you, and it's easy, easy, easy to be part of those groups. So to, to respond to Troy's previous point about what are next steps, I think that Illinois Board of Elections site is really helpful, making sure, see, are you registered to vote? Where, where can you vote? If you're not registered to vote, you can find out that you can vote in person, bring two forms of ID, um, and then re researching the candidates. Look up Ballotpedia. There's a lot of uh, educational resources online to kind of uh, provide details on, on each of these candidates. And even if you can just pick one race that you want to become interested in and research that candidate, um, that, that's a step, right? To just yeah. don't, don't feel overwhelmed by the whole list, but pick out a few that look like um, you want to go in. And I, I think if you live in this area, if you live in the Marine Valley's district, you're probably in the 6th Congressional District, and there are two candidates um, debating really important issues that will help um, uh, determine the outcome of the House of Representatives. And so that's a vote that really, really does count that you can look at and decide where you want to stand. That's the 6th Congressional District. <laughs> One question that was posed to me by a student was, do I have to vote for all Democrats or all Republicans? It's, it, and the answer is no. I can vote for a Democrat governor, a Republican attorney general. You can libertarian. House of Representatives. So you don't have to. You can. You can skip you can one skip of the. Race if you, you don't can skip if you, like you don't know who to vote for. You can leave it blank. It's okay. Yeah. Any other final questions? Well, thank you so much for being here. Don't forget to sign in uh, for your respective classes on the end. So thank you. Take care.
Yeah, I hope I did okay. With no prep. I mean, I guess I've had like.